Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm Richard Bronk, visiting fellow in the European Institute here at the London School of Economics, and my only role today is as chair of this event. And before I introduce our speaker tonight, a few pieces of housekeeping. Philip will speak for about 35 minutes, um, and then we might have a brief discussion, or we might not, and then there will be 30 minutes of question and answer after that, so if you could keep your questions till then. And we'll end about 10 to 8, and there'll be a book signing afterwards um, for, for, for Philip's book. We hope to make a podcast of the, of the event, and that means it'd be great if you could all put your mobiles on silent, if they're not already. But you are invited to tweet, as often as you like, um, during or after the, the lecture, on hashtag LSE Economics. Now, Philip is here to discuss whether economics has become... The Enemy and his new book, I Spend Therefore I Am, The True Cost of Economics, has just been published last week by Penguin Viking. Philip has an unusual academic background. His first degree was actually in theology at the University of Leeds. He then did an MPhil in medieval Arabic thought in the University of Oxford and then a PhD in management at Lancaster University. And he's currently reader in management the School of Management in the University of St. Andrews. But he has also been a financial journalist and a businessman. So without further ado, let me introduce introduce Philip Roscoe. It is no exaggeration to say that the classical culture of Tlon is composed of a single discipline, psychology, to which all others are subordinate. So says the narrator of Borges' fable, who has stumbled upon an imaginary world, first through an entry in a bootleg imprint of an American encyclopedia, and then, in more detail, in the papers of his father's friend, Herbert Ash, an engineer for the Southern Railway Company, deceased. Talon, it turns out, is the work of a secret society set up to imagine a new world from top to bottom. One where ideas are real and reality is uncomfortably false. In Borges' playful telling, much of what is real is insubstantial. A limited and waning memory of Herbert Ashe still lingers among the honeysuckle and in the illusory depths of the mirrors. In life, Ashe was affected with unreality. In death, he is not even the ghost he was in life. Toulon, on the other hand, with its history and geography, its grammar and philosophy seems ever and ever more real. Soon artefacts from this imaginary world begin to appear in our real one. A compass with its dial inscribed with characters from the Tolonian alphabet, or a strange, impossibly heavy cone of metal, an image of the deity from that other world. The narrator tells us how our own reality collapses as these findings multiply, with the history of Tolon now taught in schools and its language replacing French and Spanish. Mankind is unable to resist the rigour and the logical splendour of this imaginary world. How could, says the narrator, how could the world not fall under the sway of Tlon? How could it not yield to the vast and minutely detailed evidence of an ordered planet? It would be futile to reply that reality is also orderly. Perhaps it is, but orderly in accordance with divine laws that we can never quite manage to penetrate. In this lecture, 
I would like to suggest that Borges' fiction has a real-life counterpart, the economy. It is a world of seductive order and clarity, explained in great detail by a set of rules that we call economics. Its artefacts, its models and devices populate our own. Its rules spill into ours. Yet, it is precisely because the economy is governed, structured and organised by those rules that they explain it so well. Moreover, through the artifice of its completeness, through its drive to subordinate all other human knowledge, letters and the arts, as well as the natural sciences, to a simple set of trade-offs, it achieves a logical perfection, a transcendence, beyond which policymakers, intellectuals and citizens, yes, we as citizens, are unable to see. It is in this spirit that I have offered you the title, Economics the enemy, and a tiny telling question mark which allows the possibility that the game is not yet played and lost. We need to, we must speak about economics. We should not underestimate economics' ability to remake the world in its own image. The path of economic theory may meander through the architectures and devices used by market agents, or run in a straight line through legislation, most often it is a mixture of both. The sustained bubble in property prices here in the southeast can be traced to changes in the legislation of, borrow- of borrowing and ownership, but also changes in the construction of distribution of credit, and perhaps more fundamentally, to a change in the discourses and the significance of ownership. In the post-war settlement, housing was a social good, held to a great extent by the state. A house was a home, irrespective of who owned it. By the beginning of the 21st century, a house is an investment, not a home. It is fetishised by home improvement programmes on the television and commodified by the apparatus of buy-to-let mortgages, credit scores and borrowing calculators. As with any other commodity, some people have many and some have none. That's fine for Rolex watches, but less good for the roof that we need over our head. So putting something on the market, even pricing it, has consequences. My favourite example comes from the Norwegian fisheries in the late 1980s and early 90s. Prompted by a collapse in fish stocks, the administration imposed quotas, transferring that commons into a private ownership. Establishing property rights is never easy, especially when the property in question is slippery, elusive and at large in the depths of the ocean. Property rights refer to concrete items, things that can be identified by law, located on maps and on plans. If a resource is to be shared out, then we need to know how big it is and where we can find it. There may be, as the saying goes, plenty more fish in the sea, but how many exactly? Economics, sweeping marine biology into its network of calculation, provided a way of finding out. Complex models based on birth and mortality assumptions, as well as the very solid technologies of spotting and tracking. The commons and its future revenues were parceled up and shared out. At first, a district-level quota, a marking out of the allowable catch at the local level, enough to destroy the existing norms of collective ownership, the brave Norwegian fishermen embedded in a tight village community, but not yet enough to protect individual rights, led to an arms, of, arms race of ships that could brave the seas earlier in the season and grab a lion's share of the catch. 
So the administrators naturally responded by issuing quotas at an individual level, so that each fisherman now had his share of the catch, or should I say, of the catchable, the rents from the commons now and into the future. But when one owns something, one can sell it or dispose of it just as easily as one can maintain it. Why go out into the freezing, cold, violent North Sea and take one's chances with those elusive fish when one can sit in an armchair and sell the right to the fish, sell one's property to somebody else? Fishmen with a bigger boat who can fish more cheaply and in relative safety are likely to pay a good price for your quota. They might well pay you more than you can earn yourself because they make more profit on it. Despite regulatory opposition then, market quotas sprang up, and soon enough the fisherman was property manager, not hunter, and the noble savage of the Norwegian seas existed only in the popular imagination. Now, I would not wish to be painted as a naive romantic or some kind of primitivist. During faculty meetings and exam boards in St Andrews, I stare forlornly out of the window over the North Sea, and it is not a place you would find me net in hand. My grandfather grew up in Abavan, a mining town in the Welsh Valleys, and I have no romantic notions of that way of life either. Although, with its library and church, its choir or its pit band, the mining town of old was a dignified and cultured community compared with the bright and deprivation that one encounters today. And I'm well aware of the sink estates in our cities that have resulted from badly planned state-owned housing. My point is simply this. The world we live in is one that we make, a product of careful social organisation. And if we wish, we can change its shape. We may find ourselves in a society where every aspect, not just of government, but also of our persons, is measured by and subjected to economics. But we should not assume that economics offers a glimpse of a higher plan with which we can never disagree. How we talk matters. It frames our decisions. It tells us what counts and what doesn't. It tells us what is important. It helps us to distribute responsibility and apportion blame. And most of all, it tells us who we are noble savage or property owner. At the heart of this lecture, there lies a philosophical problem. It was a professor here at the LSE, Sir Karl Popper, who persuaded us that the job of science is to hypothesize, predict, and test. Milton Friedman took his ideas into the methodology of positive economics, a document that I'm sure every graduate student has here has read. If you haven't, you should have done Popper and Friedman stood in the tradition of analytic philosophy, pursuing a rigorous, logical and dispassionate language of science, and it's a tradition that we still encounter today. It seems to me that every PPE graduate in a seat of power has an unflinching, though often dimly articulated, belief in the power of the deductive method and the virtues of utilitarianism. The challenge to this analytic philosophy came from within, from another Oxford man, J.L. Austin, he was austere, cold, and forbidding. According to the historian Noel Annan, he, Noel Annan, he resembled an inscrutable crane, bald-headed and angular, and had been a strategist in military intelligence working for Eisenhower during the war. 
He liked to play Bach partitas on the violin at home and tended to write and to speak of Aristotle as though he were an interesting but slightly exasperating colleague living on the next staircase. He would gather together the brightest young Oxford philosophers for Sunday morning salons where he would shred their papers or, if he admired them, pay them the compliment of ignoring them altogether. His battles with Alfred Ayer, king of the analytic philosophers, became the stuff of common room legend, pictured by no less than Isaiah Berlin as a clash of Homeric proportions. Ayer like an irresistible missile, Austin like an immovable object, Ayer advancing under the shield of his sense data terminology, Austin peppering it with objections, Ayer changing his premises under these arrows and buckling on a new shield, only once again to be met with slashes and thrusts. Austin, for all his conservatism, was a visionary, an original thinker who opened the door to a new intellectual age. He showed us how we do things with words, that words themselves could perform, that they could be, to use his term, performative. According to Austin, the act of speech itself changes the world just as much as a physical action. The world becomes a place where that speech has been spoken. We can push Austin's ideas further. The sociologist Barry Barnes has written of social life as a process of bootstrapped induction, where the concepts and theories that we use to make sense of the social shape the same world through tight self-referential feedback loops. And in 1998, the French scholar Michel Callon suggested that economic theory produces its own world, and that, by the same token, economic man the instrumentally rational solipsist of modern economic theory, is a creature bred, perhaps even engineered, in the laboratory of the economy. A repertoire of social competence is held together, performed by a technical vocabulary, economic rules and procedures, and the material architectures of the economic world. Callon gives economics a broad reach. It covers much of what we might do here, in this institution, or in my own university school of management, measuring, planning, forecasting, accounting, surveying, and simulating. Subsequent work, my own included, has shown that economics is able to enrol and capture other forms of social scientific and indeed natural scientific knowledge. Forgive me if I paraphrase Borges, it is no exaggeration to say that our present culture is composed of a single discourse to which all others are subordinate. Economics provides us with a universal vocabulary of action, framing problems in terms of costs and benefits, utilities and disutilities, social welfare and the dreaded ubiquitous business case. At the same time, it crowds out, as an economist might say, the jostling multitude of rival claims. Perhaps that is its attraction, but it has robbed us of the ability to frame the discussion in any other way. Let me illustrate that point with a question. Should we allow markets in transplant organs? There is a pressing need for more organs for transplantation. Waiting lists are swollen, and for many patients, transplantation offers the chance of a new life. An economically-minded thinker might say that my second kidney, redundant in my body, may offer me much less utility than it could offer someone whose kidneys have failed, 
and that, as I am poor, their wealth might bring me greater utility than it does them. We therefore have a productive deal. And in one very narrow sense, this is true. So my question remains, should we have markets in organs? Some argue that there are things that should not be bought and sold. Others point out the substantial empirical evidence that shows that organ trade, even where legal, is utterly destructive. But I'll put that to one side, if I may. The challenge in economic terms, that is, according to the narratives and justifications that we require of our policymakers and our governments, is merely to show that a free market in kidneys, if it were permitted, would be a more efficient solution and that everyone would benefit accordingly. A sophisticated economic model could help by showing how much, in dollar terms, we could gain through these legalised organ markets. In this sense, defeating the moral argument against such a market becomes an exercise in quantitative modelling. Will organ markets be good enough to overcome the principled objections to them, where good enough is answered in terms offered by the market itself? And to answer that, we need to know the price of kidneys. Since the 1990s, numerous papers have set about modelling the price of transplant organs. Even Nobel laureate Gary Becker has had a go, and his answer, in case you're wondering, is $37,500 for half of your liver. One cluster of studies, which I find particularly interesting, have made use of a strategy known as the contingent valuation method, a model pioneered in environmental economics to establish prices for things such as clean air. In outline, it is ingenious and simple. A questionnaire asks individuals how much they'd be willing to pay to obtain a good and how much they would accept to forfeit the good. And from those responses, it is possible to calculate a supply curve and thereby a price. I'll come back in a moment to kidneys. Let's focus for a moment on this contingent valuation methodology. It is notorious for its unpredictability. It suffers, for example, from anchoring bias, where the responses or valuations offered by participants will be swayed by the construction of the survey itself. It will be even more pronounced for the value of something like clean air, where we have no natural anchor. If, for example, I were to offer you dinner with the film star of your choice or a nuclear war-free future for your children, moving the scale of available responses would drastically change the results. Moreover, I might pay a huge amount of imaginary money for an equally imaginary date or a nuclear-free future, but imaginary money clouds the water of policy debate. The method is also inescapably political, because asking individuals how much they value something changes the nature of that thing. Asking me to set a price on something currently priceless, such as clean air, makes it priced, makes it a commodity, a thing in which we can transact. Using the method to inform policy responses institutionalises this transaction. A high-profile example can illustrate the point. In March 1989, the Exxon Valdez oil tanker ran aground in Alaska, and in the ensuing legal wrangling, an economic team assembled by the state argued for a loss in use value of $2.8 billion, derived from just such a contingent valuation model applied across the whole of the United States. 
The lawyers argued that for people, even for people who would never visit Alaska, there is value in the knowledge that it exists and that is available for the, of, for the use of future generations. Fair enough. But here is the contentious part. They argued that this use value can be expressed in dollar terms. And to put a cash value on the benefit that each household derives from knowing Alaska exists, the team simply asked them how much they would pay to preserve the resource and how much they would demand to let it slip away. Each household would be willing, the team determined, to pay $31 to keep Alaska beautiful. Multiplied by 91 million households, the total value attached to the Prince William Sound came to $2.8 billion. With its surveys, its samples and statistical analysis, this method is a scientific endeavour, discovering a set of preferences and values that always existed but were never properly recognised. It posits the natural and proper means of valuing a wilderness it posits that, sorry, the natural and proper means of valuing a wilderness is to treat it like any other article of property that can be bought or sold at will. What is shocking, when you really think about it, is how little people seem to actually value this wilderness. A cheap dinner for one, a single trainer, or a prime habitat forever. It doesn't seem very much. But once the link between consumer sovereignty and wilderness is made, it becomes very hard to undo. The organ market advocates made the same moves in their study, and with similar results. A class of undergraduate students at Auburn University, perhaps not those best placed to attach a value to their own demise, were asked how much they would pay to hold on to their organs after death, and how much they would accept to sign a contract allowing posthumous retrieval. These youngsters must have been very keen on the idea of cash in their hand for something so far in the future. The resulting supply was very responsive to incentives, and a price of $1,000 per donor was enough to clear the market. Now, medical science can get two kidneys, a liver, bowels, pancreas, a pair of corneas, bone marrow, tissue, part, tissue and other body parts we barely recognize ourselves from a single cadaver. So the, order, the authors concluded that the price per individual organ would be trivial. However, now that there is a price, there is another way, an economic way, of asking whether we should have markets in transplant organs. Words, as J.L. Austin pointed out, do. The circumstances through which the price, the economic fact, have been produced fade into the background, taking all those methodological uncertainties and complexities with them. Like Frankenstein's monster, the $1,000 corpse slips its chains and begins to travel. Subsequent papers claim that a market in organs would see the end of organised crime and the black market because organs would be so cheap that it simply wouldn't be worth the criminal's while. In a discussion over education as a means of encouraging donation, the authors conclude that education is expensive and inefficient and that the $1,000 cadaver is a better solution. This is no longer a moral argument or a discussion about the kind of world we wish to live in. It has become a matter of technical simulation where education and donation can be justified only by a superior economic model. At the centre of all this argumentation is one cardinal assumption, the presumption that an act of exchange is rational and so incentives would indeed produce supply. It structures my exchange of kidney for cash and the students' signing of forward contracts for donation. 
and in a largely self-referential manner, the exercise indicates that the act of exchange is indeed rational. Now, after three decades of this kind of discussion, the public debate itself has shifted. In 1970, Richard Titmus proclaimed the superiority of altruism and gift exchange. In 2011, the Nuffield Council for Bioethics, one of the UK's leading bioethics think tanks, left the door most definitely open to the payment of incentives in return for donation. And there we have it, the full circle. Models and policies based upon economic man, the solipsistic, instrumentally rational agent selfishly interested in the maximization of future utilities, brings that very creature into being. Policies to protect the commons create the property managers that they presuppose. Recasting houses as investments leads to the inequalities that we see in the distribution of any other kind of capital. Models that value organs as commodities bring into being a world where it is possible to talk as if organs are commodities and moral questions can be answered on the basis of price. These, economics, these economic methods appeal to us because they are abstract and objective. They provide us with a way of speaking, a vocabulary that seems to transcend the complexities and difficulties of the world around us. We find them everywhere, in government discussions on culture. As Dave O'Brien of City University has discovered, the Treasury Green Book and the business case are ubiquitous. We find them at home when, for example, we ask the algorithms of the dating site to find us a perfect partner. It's commonplace now to argue that economic thinking is all that we need to organise our world. A newspaper comment on my book a couple of weeks ago suggested that we should cut the cant from public discourse and stick to transparent calculative rationality. I would reply in several ways. First of all, I would question the very basis of that objectivity. Few real decisions resemble the simplicity of textbook choices. Calculations rest on more calculations and sooner or later, the judgment and the expertise of the researcher in question. As the organ pricing example shows us, political judgments inform the choice of methods and influence the lessons that are taken from analysis of complex data. Second, I would argue that cost-benefit is not the only tool we have at our disposal, nor is efficiency the only virtue, that the market is not the only measure of worth, that such calculations may be necessary, but that they are not sufficient for the management of society. We should be able to talk about what we ought to do in policy or administration in other ways, perhaps in terms of justice, of equity or participation, or of obligation. Yet these fuzzy, wishy-washy terms fade into the background when confronted with the straightforward facticity of numbers. In the audience here, I'm speaking to many students, I would imagine, many of whom will become managers. You are the people on whom our society will depend in 10, 20, 30 years. I'm sure you're good-hearted and confident in your own moral virtues. You will try your best when you can. I teach a course in St Andrews on ethics in management, and students have wondered why. For, they say, ethics are within you not a matter for discussion or for learning. 
And that's just the point. In business ethics, as in our public discourse, responsibility and moral rectitude have been individualised and privatised. They are, as Milton Friedman memorably pointed out, for church and the family on Sundays. The business of business is business. Weighing up returns and losses, taking rational decisions, using models to make ourselves sharper, smarter and more profitable. So managers are driven by a kind of moral schizophrenia, speaking two languages, living two lives. There is a paper by James Hine of Edinburgh University which asks a group of bankers and a group of brewers to reflect on each other's activities and speak about their own. And we can see quite clearly the separation of public and private vocabulary. The brewers justify their introduction of Alcapops as protecting market share from an overseas competitor. Then a banker reflects upon his teenage daughter's party. All seems well, dancing, giggling, fizzy pop. Next thing you know, you've got a dozen 14-year-old girls throwing up on the Persian rug. Try and explain that to their parents. Then the bankers talk of targets and shareholder-driven cultures, but the brewer puts it rather more pithily. If you read, on the, if you read all the small print on their contracts, he says, you'd go blind. Last of all, there is something problematic about the language of price itself. I've spoken today about things that are priceless, landscapes, obligations to the less well-off, even parts of our own anatomy. The economic endeavour is, is to apply prices to everything, to bring everything within a single metric of calculation. In doing so, it robs us of speech in an ever-greater domain, and prices objectify they corrode, they signify through performance the interchangeability of one good for another. It really does become possible to swap a landscape for oil revenues, to exchange personal services or even your kidney for your education. Can we possibly imagine anything that could be untouched by such an exchange? And yet, shorn of our language, we struggle to mount a defence in the face of economic reason. We have, I suggest, been swept up by a manner of speaking that is fit neither as a public discourse nor as a guide to the management and organisation of our private lives. A discipline that so dehumanises is by definition itself inhuman. And it is in this sense that I have dared to suggest that economics is our enemy. Well, what are we to do? Will we be like Borges' narrator who plans to spend his final quiet days in the hotel, revising, without hope of publication, an indecisive translation in the Baroque style? Do we give in to the inevitable and retreat into the scholasticism of yet more modelling, surveying and simulation? If it has become an unavoidable truth that everything is subject to the economic domain, what moves can we make to refashion these arrangements so that they might be fit, not just for our habitation, but for that of our children and our grandchildren? Speaking at the LSE, it seems fitting to give the last word, almost the last word, to one of its own, the sociologist Juan Pablo Pardo Guerra. A fellow student of markets, he's struck by the radical program of synthetic biology, which aims to produce toolkits and building blocks that will allow anyone to build novel biological structures. 
Imagining markets based on and coupled to biological systems could result in markets that are, in his words, pragmatic, even civic. Pardaguerra imagines, envisages a hacker paradise of self-contained, made-to-measure markets able to tackle specific problems and bring about certain ends. Conservation of the rhino is one of his examples. Would it be possible, he wonders, to construct a market that wraps up and destroys this trade, one that changes social norms so that it strangles itself upon its own success? Let me offer an example of an economic form that does, I believe, just what Pardo Guerra intends. It doesn't solve the problem of the rhino horn, but it does confront another one closer to home, the contemporary town, a place where no one knows anyone else, where some leave for work early and return late, where others remain isolated and at home, perhaps old and infirm or unemployed and marginalised, a town that is disenchanted, alienated, These disparities are common enough and we lay the blame at the door of our old friend economics. The doctrines of free markets and everyone for themselves competition have a lot to answer for. But there is equally an economics that undoes some of this damage and it comes in the shape of the local exchange trading scheme or LETS. The principle of the LETS is simple enough. Members advertise services, skills or produce that they can offer and others that they would like to receive. Usually there's some kind of directory. It may be online or printed, and members contact each other to request whatever it is that they want. They agree a price in the scheme's notional currency, and the transaction is recorded by means of a cheque or an online system, all of which sounds very economic, with its talk of bargains and of cheques. And I think this is doubtless the point, as these schemes are an attempt to subvert and to repurpose existing economic arrangements. The big difference comes, of course, in the agreement of the price. Price is based around the amount of time it takes to provide a good or a service. Three hours of one service costs the same as three hours of another, irrespective of the nature of service or who provides it. The equivalence of value and time is a foundational principle of any let's. Organisers understand that there is something fundamentally liberating about pricing everybody's time at the same level. The unemployed, economically excluded individual is valued the same as the wealthy professional, no matter what service or product is offered. By participating in a let's transaction, an individual actively recognises the value of the other in a communal exchange. About 18 months ago, a new trading scheme started up in St Andrews. Notebook in hand, I got along to some of the planning meetings. This is work in progress, as my academic colleagues will know all too well. Most work is work in progress most of the time. My putative co-author in the papers that we haven't written yet is an enthusiastic participant, bartering cakes and bits of homemade furniture in return for all sorts of things. This all sounds tremendously middle class, and that, I'm afraid, is a persistent criticism of these lets. Those who have to earn their living doing odd jobs prefer to be paid in cash, and if they don't, the taxman will still treat them as if they had been. Nevertheless, observing the scheme is throwing up all sorts of interesting questions, not least that we have no idea what this money means. Everything seems up for grabs. Narratives of value, of worth, are worked out in the here and now. 
We know, for example, that eight saints, that's the St. Andrew's currency, will get you half a kilo of Tamworth sausages. The coda to a curly tale involving a group of enterprising students, an accommodating farmer and a local patch of ground, and some fast-growing piglets and a tape measure. It's not just our research, but the scheme itself that is work in progress, as participants figure out what it is they want it to be and want it to do. Now, sceptical observers will point out that the success of these lets is mixed. And it's true. Even the successful ones tend to collapse under the weight of the bureaucracy required to manage them. The experience of those participants I've spoken to is indeed that these schemes eventually peter out. Does this mean that they're worthless? I don't think so. Local exchange trading schemes offer a window onto a new way of organising markets, one that highlights the role of trust and empathy in economic exchange and makes it possible to imagine that economics could be different, that it could be an economics for us, locally organised and productive, and one which we control in a very local, specific way. It may even be that a local trading scheme is exactly the kind of hacker paradise market that Pardo Guerra envisages, self-contained and for purpose, that any trading scheme is a necessarily short-lived thing, with the seeds of its own demise sown in its success. For once the scheme has succeeded in establishing trading relationship among people who were previously strangers, the bureaucracy is no longer needed and the scheme wastes away. It leaves in its place a community. In these schemes, with each exchange reanimated with social content, perhaps we can begin to glimpse a language and a vocabulary robust enough to sustain us into the future. A positive economics filled by dignity, compassion and humanity. An economics that is simply no longer the enemy. Thank you. Thank you very much, Philip. Um, now let me just start with... Um, two or three questions of my own to your very interesting talk. Um, I was wondering, listening to you sometimes, whether your real target wasn't more the ethical doctrine of utilitarianism rather than, eth- than economics. The whole science, if you like, of believing that you can calculate on the basis on a single scale of value um, what the right answer is. Um, and and you, you, you denied you were a romantic, but actually you, you reminded me very much of many of the early romantic critis, critics of, romant, of, of uh, utilitarianism and the idea that you could um, reduce everything to a profit and, profit and loss account. So is, is this your real target, the idea that you can render incommensurable values commensurable um, without, without going through some deep moral debate and political debate about how you make those trade-offs? burying them in the willingness to pay calculations, etc., and so on. Is that your real target? First of all, I would never deny that I'm a romantic to you, Richard, <laughs> of, all th- of all things. Um, I think that's true. I mean, economics is plainly a shorthand, isn't it, in this? Uh, and I, 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 speaking in a, in a university, 
obviously people are sophisticated about what economics might be. So we have all kinds of economics. You know, we have Marxist economics, we have um, Amartya Sen's economics of capability, all sorts of things. Um, economics, as I've used it, is exactly that. It's a shorthand for a particular kind of uh, cost-benefit-driven, profit-driven rationality that is pervasive, I would say, in our, in our public discourse. And yes, you're right, it is, it is utilitarian. I mean, it's, it's, it's classic sort of PPE um, economics and philosophy. And, um, and I do object to that. But I think, you know, we can, we can have a conversation uh, for, a, for a, a lay audience, at least, about economics, and they will recognise what, what we see going on in the public sphere. Yes, I mean, there's undoubtedly a lot of utilitarianism in, in, in absolutely, economics. Absolutely, absolutely. But I think this, I still want to just press you a little bit more on whether economics as a discipline is really what's to blame here, perhaps just by mentioning three figures in, in history. One was John Stuart Mill, who was, after all, the utilitarian, but was very keen on the limits of markets, if you like, and he wrote this great thing about the stationary state and how it would be disaster if we ripped up every hedgerow and so on in the name of progress and so on. So I think many economists have realized there should be limits to markets. Um, Robbins, who gets a... Lionel Robbins of, mm -hmm. of the LSE, who gets perhaps a slightly unfair press in, you, in your book, did say there is nothing in economics which relieves, relieves us of the obligation to choose. So eth economics is quite distinct from ethics, I think he would argue, and the, the, the danger is when you... When you Confuse the two exactly, um, and I think we see that we see that over and over again. You know, in the, in in the um, in the the public discourse that we face, and also in these in these. You know, for example, the kind of modelling that I was talking about in the case of organs. It's very clear from the outset what what the what the story is. You know, what the political positions of the of the authors are. If you if you read the papers, if you um, read the obituary of one of the leading authors who was himself a, a, a kidney sufferer or kidney um, failure sufferer who waited a long time for a transplant, someone who had worked in the economics of trade and taxes and tariffs all of his days, it seems very natural um, to use those kind of techniques to do to try and um, bring about, if you like, a, a change for the good. And I think what's invisible there is the, is the set of, of moral claims that are already embedded in that welfare economics, the economics of trade and, and taxes. We're familiar with them, with them after, all of us now, after two, uh, three decades of um, free markets and globalization. We know that, um, you know, the, the utilitarian doctrine of, um, of, of global competition and free markets is accompanied by pain felt locally and, and sharply. Uh, and I think those kind of trade-offs become invisible in these arguments, and that, that is what I'm trying to get at. It's, it's to try and open up a discussion, a, a provocation. And do you think cost-benefit analysis itself can be, can be rescued? I mean, there is, there is some attempts by some people to do what's called a multi-goal cost-benefit analysis, where you keep, the, you keep what you might call the good bits of cost-benefit analysis, the analysis in respect of each goal of whether one option versus another is, is better in relation to that goal, but make explicit the need for value choices and political decisions and how you weight the different goals. Would that be enough to help solve the problem that's vexing you or not? Um, in, a, in a limited sense, 
perhaps. That's, a, that's an academic answer, isn't it, if ever there was one. Um, I, I think that there is always going to be a need for some kind of cost-benefit analysis, inevitably, and that it, the, the, the point is that it should be you know, in its place within a broader discourse of, of, of moral responsibility or public culpability or what have you. It's probably better, in fact, if we have a cost-benefit analysis, that is a cost-benefit analysis, rather than saying, okay, you know, um, it, it, our, our model has to decide everything, but it's not quite clever enough, so we'll build a bigger model and then we can decide everything with, with this new model. I know um, the philosopher Jonathan Wolf has written about a need for, I think it's, it's models of risk, fear, shame and blame to, to be incorporated in the pricing of accident liability. I mean, I don't, I don't know how that can be done with any, de- with a, with any degree of... of, of um, kind of scientific or numerical accuracy, you seem to maybe end up in a worse place where there are more assumptions, you know, more unstated claims pushed into the figures. It would be better if we were able to, to, to say, look, this is, you know, this is the cost, this is what we think will happen, but this is only one of, of half a dozen rival claims that we have to take into account. Great. Thank you very much. Now let me open it up to questions from the floor. The way we're going to um, run this is that we'll take three questions at a time um, and there's a roving mic that will come to you. Please don't ask your question until the mic gets to you. Introduce yourself and say where you're from. And uh, please, it's questions, not lectures. First question. Not a good place to be in, and being a first questioner, but nevertheless. Um, you seem to be fighting not only with economics, but I think your fight is against rationality itself. I mean, every time rationality leads you to, uh, 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 every time rationality offends your sensibility, you want to throw away the rationality in the bin. Now, I ask you this, that if we were, if the humanity were, would humanity be better off uh, following that line, line of I mean, how would we progress if we, if we want to call, uh, throw away rationality every time it offends our, our sensibility? So, yes, uh, wouldn't it shut our, our path of progress? Thank you. And then another question over here. Thank you very much for a very interesting lecture. I'm from Japan, and my question is, about the cost-benefit analysis, the usage of the cost-benefit analysis can be very much rational, as you said, not the enemy. If the targeted measurement and the, and the space and the time is targeted for the commons, um, I think because I'm from Japan, I got this impression from the experience, our experience of the use of the nuclear, nuclear plants. Before the March of 2011, TEPCO, the company of the electric producer, was saying that it's very much economical to use the nuclear plants for the produce of the electricity. However, after that disaster, we assumed that 
we were not right to how to calculate the cost and benefits. We didn't think about how to dispose the, those wastes of the nuclear. And maybe economists were thinking always in the shorter term at when you say the cost and the benefit. But when we look at the longer term and the global issues, like the environmental issues, that the way of the calculation could be different. So that is my impression. Thank you very much. And one more question over here. Thank you very much. Um, Nicholas, a PhD student at the Haji School of Governance and uh, at LSE Ideas, yeah. Um, thank you very much for a really interesting talk. I really um, and, and enjoyed your portrayal and analysis of uh, economics as a discourse, maybe in a, in a Foucauldian sense, and also share your, um, your analysis as the, that, is, uh, that this discourse is all persuasive in these days. But what interests me is basically what explains the, the resonance of this discourse. And um, so why are we so obsessed with markets these days? And um, maybe another question, um, I think words to, to, to have a performative effect, I think, must, must somehow resonate with reality, with everyday reality, say, of, of, of people. And so what's, what does this power, the power of this, of this discourse, tell us about us uh, as human beings? So there were three, three questions there. Is, is your enemy really rationality itself? And how can cost-benefit analysis deal with big questions like nuclear power where you have these enormously difficult uh, issues over, um, uh, over life and death? And what explains the resonance of the discourse of economics? How has it come to be this sole discourse as you see it? What, what, what resonance has made it be that way? Wow, three, three really excellent questions. Thank you. You get a better, better class of question than I do in third-year org studies. I can tell you that much. Um, okay, thank you very much. I, I, I'll just answer them in the order that they were asked. Um, yes, rationality is a really interesting thing. No, I don't think my target is rationality. But uh, we have to be quite precise here. Um, I think if you, you know, if you read, if you read Weber, uh, and, uh, and Weber, of course, is the is the um, kind of keynote for for rationality, or if you if you read people who are who are rereading Weber now, perhaps we have these um, notions of science as a vocation, perhaps that he, he gave in some of the lectures in his later career, where the the bureaucrat or the scientist embodied their 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 role um, in a sense that allow, allowed. Judgment allowed um, some degree of sort of flexibility and, and commitment in the role, and I think that the the Weberian notion of rationality, in a, in a sense, is um, is a very appealing one, but also it's a very neutral one. It, it, so you know, you could organise, um, you you could manage an organisation in a rational way, in, in 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 a variety of different ways, or beholden to a variety of different values. And some of those would be objectionable and some would not be. I hate to say it, but the, um, the, the genocide of the Second World War was a profoundly you know, rational endeavor. Um, but that's not to say that other things are, are, are not also you know, rational and, and um, beneficial. So my target is more precise. My target is a particular kind of 
instrumental rationality that is driven by notions of, of, of profit-seeking, that is driven by noti- notions of entrepreneurship, and particularly self-entrepreneurship. Um, and I think that's something that I try and, and, and spell out um, throughout the book, or indeed, although, indeed, um, it, uh, it, it's a criticism that has been made already. Um, but if I could just come back to it, so I think if I understood your question correct, correctly, taking your fisherman's example, why, why is it a bad thing that a fisherman who spent 30 years plowing through dreadful sea conditions to barely make a living can then sell their quota to a more efficient ship and sit back and watch television? Why is that necessarily a bad thing if they've chosen to do it? Was that your, basically what you meant by your question? I don't think that it is necessarily a bad thing, but the Norwegian voters, in a sense, felt that it's a bad thing. It's certainly a significant thing. Really, that's the point of that example, um, is that the, uh, you know, a, a figure with which the Norwegian national cultural identity is very closely associated um, just no longer exists. And, and as, I, as I said, you know, they, they have my sympathy. I'd never, I'd never go on the North Sea. I live near it. You know? <laughs> um, but... So in that sense, I'm not wanting to make value judgments about rationality per se. My point is that the the construction of of society in any uh, in any situation is a is a built endeavour. You know, whether it be a medieval village, whether it be a a dark satanic mill of the industrial revolution, or indeed a a fisherman with um, with quotas. And I think we are. It's important for us as citizens to be able to to talk to that. And if we say we don't like the way things are, not to be slapped down by a a, a discourse of of saying, well, this is what the market says, this is what we've got to do. Does that get somewhere towards the question? Perhaps we should... Afterwards, maybe. Afterwards. So the... The question about um, cost benefits is very interesting. I mean, it really is the question is about uh, unintended consequences and the proliferation of cost benefit analysis, and that very neatly proves the limitation of cost benefit analysis. I mean, there are lots of there are lots of questions about nuclear power, none of which really are to do with cheap electricity. We can also get cheap electricity by digging up loads of cheap coal and sticking it in a furnace or what may be. The questions that surround nuclear power are about um, you know, sustainability, global obligations, technology, um, risk management and so forth. Uh, and I think that cost-benefit can only, only form a very small part of that, that kind of discussion. And it's precisely because it's come to, um, it's, it's come to take a, a larger part that we see how limited it is because it's unable to, to deal with, you know, to deal with an accident, to deal with the proliferation of waste or whatever it may be. Um, and the final question is a, is a very, very interesting one about the, about the resonance of the discourse of economics. Um, and it, 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 it is, you're right. I mean, is there, there is an extraordinary acceptance of this idea of markets. And I'm... I'm st- struck by a number of possible answers, so I can kind of hazard some guesses. That's all I can do. The first is a very direct um, historical account whereby um, 
the circumstances of the Cold War, together with a particularly dynamic group of um, of then you know heterodox economists associated with Hayek and Friedman and so forth, um, formed a system of organisation, being think tanks backed by um, backed by money from the United States, which institutional entrepreneurs like Hernandez de Soto in Peru, for example, who was involved with um, housing schemes, could use to build their own profiles. And so there's a kind of historical, political dimension to all of this. But in a way, I don't think that really gets to the, the heart of the question, which is, you know, why does it speak to us so well? And, and I think there is almost... Um, there's a, a kind of utopian, um, panglossian sense to this that uh, that when you, when you meet the when you meet cost-benefit analysis in the writing of Daniel Dennett, say the philosopher, he talks about it as a a universal principle, practical principle of action for all of life, or something something like that. So it's a you know cost-benefit analysis is the meaning of life. Markets are are some kind of um, Reflection of some transcendental plan. That's the feeling you get in Smith, and I think, in a sense, that's the feeling that you get in in Hayek. With it, well, I stand corrected, but with his control room and dials and so forth, um, and um, perhaps later. And, and in terms of the the idea of of performativity and reality in resonance, I mean, I'm you know. We, we, I'm much more sceptical about the, the sense of there being you know, some kind of natural, real organisation of society. This is all hard work. If it, 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 things do not necessarily resonate straight away, but for, for other reasons, or maybe they come to in due course. So I don't, ac- I don't accept that, that, um, that performativity must necessarily be held in place by you know the the rocks of human nature and reality or something like that that doesn't that's not a reading that works for me okay some more questions um yeah i was very uh, pleased to hear that you uh, ended on some solutions uh, whether they're correct or not will only time will tell. Um, and I was, uh, wanted to know, putting aside your personal preference as to whether the change will come through uh, organically, uh, as a gentle uh, process of change, or whether the change will only come through total collapse and, dare I use the word, revolution. Uh, rather than uh, stating your preference, I'd like you to uh, express your views on what you actually think will happen. So uh, I know that's a bit of a challenge to be a, 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 a prophetic, but uh, I'd appreciate your comments on that. I think... Okay. Okay. And then right at the back there... Yeah, sorry, threes. Yeah. Um, yeah, moving on exactly along that point, along um, reflecting on solutions, um, I work as a community artist in Notting Hill, Labrook Grove, and you spoke about community, and it appears to me with economics, one of the big issues is ego and imperialism and the way that economics does attempt to fight, t- tries to 
um, find value across the entire world, which frankly is just impossible. And yet when you look at the likes of Friedman, uh, Rand, Thatcher, whoever follows that kind of this economic theory, the egos on display are quite immense. They refuse to accept that they're wrong. On a local level, you find solutions every day, and it's very heartening. So I'd like you to ask you the question, can community and local solutions, which you mentioned at the end, they seem to be put forward all the time as solutions, but can they actually practically be expected to match the kind of global behemoth that is this kind of globalization and economic thought that the US in particular and now China coming along potentially are going to take over and constantly push upon us. Okay, and one more in the front row here, please. Yes. Markets are not man-made. They happen throughout nature. If there's a, a supply, uh, if there's an excess of green fly, then there's a market for the ladybirds that eat them. And that applies to all um, markets, basically, that they are successful. And often they uh, fail, yes, but um, another market takes over. So that uh, to decry markets, you, you do need occasionally to have dissent. We've had that uh, subject here. And when a very large society becomes very powerful and with a sovereign that is very powerful, the sovereign becomes corrupt and eventually the economy collapses, as ours has, because our sovereign, who is basically our tyranny of the envious majority, the same as fascism, Hitler, obtained the uh, uh, envy of the, his majority. So that uh, our, our system is now ready to collapse. I worked that out 30 years ago when I wrote my book. And now we need dissent to show that the MPs in Parliament who are sovereign are corrupt. All they want is more power, like all sovereigns always have done. Okay, um, so we've got a question of how do you think change will actually come along? Um, can localism defeat the imperialism of economics and big thinkers? And markets are not man-made, they're natural. And um, uh, you've got the rest of that question, I think. Okay. Um. <laughs> Well, I mean, in a, in a way, I, I suppose we can roll them into, into one. The first observation I would make is that uh, the events of 2008 have demonstrated to everybody that capitalism is an extraordinarily robust structure. So, in a sense, you know, I don't expect anything much to happen soon, <laughs> which is not perhaps the, the news that uh, you, we, we, we wanted to hear. Um, and you certainly wouldn't find me on the, on the streets being for revolution or anything like that. I, I, I'm interested in this idea of, of um, local solutions and because it, you're absolutely right. You know, solutions are found 
on a local level. And ironically enough, you would have on your side, of course, Hayek and von Mises and the great champions of, of um, the originators of neoliberal thought because the, for them, the whole idea of markets is that they are devices which allow um, uh, uh, local knowledge to be fed into a sort of grand computer processor and, and, and goods allocated appropriately. So I think, you know, I, I, we don't have to be especially radical, I, I think, to say that something seems to have gone terribly wrong. Um, what, might, what might the world look like if, if Lehman Brothers wasn't the only bank that had been allowed to go, go bust? You know, why should market rules apply when the going is, is good and not when it isn't? I don't know. Um, those seem to be political issues, and we do have a political system, you know, of sorts. Oh, Alex Salmond in the far north is showing us all what can happen if we rattle the cages a bit. I don't want to be drawn on that, for sure. But nonetheless, I mean, it does, it does demonstrate that we can, we can do things, we can agitate. Um, and perhaps that's what, I would, that's what I would like to see happen. The interest that I have in, in the local, I suppose, is I'm struck by the persistent dehumanizing of, of economic behavior. And that's really the other strand in this book, and I haven't talked about it today. Today I talked about speech and the public discourse. Um, I didn't really talk about um, what it does to us as people and, and um, its devices and, and, and so forth. I'll save that for another day. But it seems to me that local activity does give us something with which we can push back against this, against this dehumanization, against this dematerialization. Um, and that has to be positive, if only in the way that you know, we treat each other, we respond to each other as people, as citizens. Three more questions. Over here. Um, yes, the the lecture made me think about the ideas of uh, the French anthropologist um, Marcel Mauss, um, uh, how he described uh, non-market economies, uh, pretty much based under the explicit rejection of uh, self-interest calculation. Uh, as the f founding uh, principle of exchange. And um, uh, I was wondering um, or, or thinking that actually um, this kind of uh, cost benefits and, and, and self-interest calculation is not really, um, I mean, it is the dominant way of exchange, but it's not the only one that actually is present right now within any social group, even within most capitalistic kind, kind of institu institutions. So I was wondering, how do you see this, um, this so to speak, subordinated way, ways of so sociality that could uh, uh, function as a, if we look at them, uh, could function as uh, a source for alternatives? <clears throat> Thank you. Um, well, I'll just chip in with two more of my own, then, and then we'll wrap up. Um, on the, I think to p pick up on your, your question there, I think this is a very interesting idea that cost-benefit analysis, in a sense, is the extension of a way of thinking, utilitarian way of thinking, 
to making judgments outside the market. It's about where you try to include social costs in, uh, in, 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 in a decision-making. So in that sense, how, rel- how related is it to markets as opposed to which, in a sense, um, allow the coordination without you knowing, without you being able to calculate different what everyone else's costs and benefits are. All you know is that each person makes a particular bids a particular price as a result of their own valuations, their own knowledge. In that sense, it's not like a cost-benefit analysis which centralises that information. Um, and one last thing, I can't help asking you, which you haven't really mentioned much today, but it's a, a big part of your book is about online dating. Um, uh, and uh, you emphasize that this brings out an emphasis on measurable attributes and vital statistics of, of human beings and, um, and, and how they're listed on, on online dating sites. And I couldn't help wondering whether much had really changed from Mrs. Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, who knew absolutely down to the last thousand pounds what every eligible bachelor in the, uh, in the, in the locality earned. So has online dating really changed the way we, we react to, to, to partners or not? Okay. Um, the first question, yes, absolutely. I mean, you, the, the, the central question in, anthrop- in 20th century anthropology, if you like, was um, articulated by Polanyi, I suppose, having read Mouse, Malinowski, and so forth. Uh, about, and it's about the naturalness of contemporary economic exchange, whether it is a given um, that, you know, for some reason, primitive tribes just hadn't quite figured it out yet, or whether it's a a socially made way of doing things. So I think, clearly, you see that I come down on the the side of the latter. Um, But what do I think about these these other forms of... of, um, you know, yeah, gift exchange is economic exchange of a kind, um, so we can call it that. Well, I, I'm, I don't like the argument that you might associate with um, um, Zelitsa, for example, that all, all, all money, all economic exchange is wrapped up with other, other kinds of valuation. I think the endeavour of economics is to purify. So it's, it's these these particular modes of transaction are purged of other kinds of, of, um, of you know, gift or altruism or whatever it may be. So, these th- and, it, and it's very powerful. So, though these things exist, I don't hold out a, you know, a great deal of hope for them transforming the, the mainstream unless they can find a way back in. Hence, you know, the, the interest in, in let's, hence the, uh, the, the the contribution of um, community projects and, and so forth. So, I, you know, this is, this is about, about relative power as much as anything. Um, yes, the, 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 the business of, of utilitarianism versus the, versus the market. In some ways, that, that's absolutely true, you know, of course. Um, the whole purpose of the kind of Hayekian hypothesis is that we don't have the knowledge to do proper cost benefits analysis. So that's they do stand against each other, but in other cases they do similar things, which is that they try they they try and value. So one is a one is a, a collective automatic effort, and the other one is a precise um, um, calculative effort. 
Um, both of them, I try and make clear, both of them are invisible. You know, both of them are black boxes that we struggle to, to peer inside. Um, but they do both do the same thing, which is they attach prices. And in some cases we need prices, and in other cases we do not. So there are, there are two sets of arguments going on there. The first is which is the better way to produce prices where we need prices, and the second is do we need prices at all. And um, in a sense, that kind of gets us on to the, the, the last question, which fortunately I haven't really got much time for. <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to argue that the, the mechanics of this same process of pricing, of exchangeability, fungibility, if you like, that is brought about by, um, by rational methods of cost-benefit analysis or by markets can be implemented in various kinds of sophisticated exchange without money. And so therefore, you know, when we, when we uh, engage a computer dating algorithm, um, when we look for a partner that way, when we compare, you know, the, the, the market, if you like, or what's on offer, however you want to call it, then we, um, we do so in a, in a particular way. Um, with reference to a lot of um, particularly distinct modern technologies. So, you must forgive me, I'm not a, a great reader of Austin. I never have been. But um, I think there is something distinctively different and, and modern about online dating in as much as firms have managed to, to capture the essence of, of, a, of a relationship. So, you know, the old-fashioned notion of, of who's, who's got what or an arranged marriage that would bring a, a two clans or kingships together or whatever it may be. These are all specific, particular, historically located kinds of social organisation, as is Austin. And we have one here, too, in online dating. And what makes it particularly distinctive is that firms have, you know, used the methods of economics and of social science to deduce what makes a relationship work. And they will say, well, we know better than you. You just pay us your money and we'll, we'll find you a partner. And that, to me, seems to be innovative and different from, from things we've previously seen. Okay, well, that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. Um, just to remind you that uh, Philip's book is on sale outside, and he's happy to sign it if you um, buy a copy, of course. Um, and it leads only to thank you all for coming tonight and to thank Philip Roscoe for his talk.